if you have your Bibles today, turn with me to the book of Genesis. I'll be working in the NIV, but if you have the ESV or whatever version you're using, obviously with two chapters to cover, um, Jay said that I have enough battery to last 12 hours, and I said, well, we might need it all. But anyway, we'll be reading parts of this and summarizing other parts, but what this is really about is how Abraham lived by faith in the face of a world that was coming under God's judgment. And the remarkable way that Abraham dealt with all of that and demonstrated his faith is a great example for you and me. And so today, it's really Abraham's story, not just the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And this is the way Moses recorded it in chapter 18, verse 1. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, if I found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered, do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three sayas of, fine, of the finest flour, knead it, and bake some bread. You got to love it. That's what husbands do. Honey, I got guests coming by. I didn't tell you. Make something quick. Anyway, verse 7. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. And while they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Where's your wife, Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent, he said. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. And Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I'm old and worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, well, I really have a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. When the men got up to leave, they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went toward Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. And then Abraham approached him and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you, will not the judge of all the earth do right? And the Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I'll spare the whole place for their sake. So then Abraham says again, well, what if only 45 can be found? The Lord said, I'll spare it. What if only 40? I'll spare it. What if only 30? I'll spare it. What if only 20? I'll spare it. And finally he comes down. What if only 10 can be found there? And the Lord said, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. Chapter 19, the two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting at the gate of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them, and he bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, come and stay with me tonight. They said, no, we're going to stay in the village square. 
He said, no, you don't want to do that. Come to my house. He gave them refreshment. And as soon as they were ready for bed, it said all the men of the city, young and old, gathered around the house. And they called to Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out so we can have sex with them. Lot went outside. He closed the door and he said, look, guys, you don't want to do this. Don't do this. These people have come under my roof for protection. I have two virgin daughters who've never been with a man. I'm going to give them to you to do what you want, but don't do it to these men. Uh, uh, Something we'll come back to in a minute. A horrible thing for a dad to say. Get out of our way, they said. Who made you our judge? And they went to break down the door. The angels reach out, grab Lot, bring him back in, strike the men outside with blindness. And then the angels say to Lot, do you have any other people in this city? Because you've got to get them out. He goes to his sons-in-law and tells them they think he's joking and they don't leave. Finally, as an act of God's grace, the angels grab Lot, his wife, his daughters by the hand and lead them out. Get out of the city. Go to the mountains. He said, we can't go to the mountains. We're going to be overwhelmed there. Can we go to this little town down here called Zoar? Yeah, go down there. And on the way out, the angel said, flee the city and do not look back. And you know the famous story. Lot's wife looks back. We don't know why, but she does. And she's turned into a pillar of salt. Lot and his two daughters are saved. And when you come to the end of chapter 19, this is what you read. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had looked or where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham. And he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. Let's pray for a moment. Lord, the themes of judgment are not fun for us to read. In fact, at times they're a little bit scary. Because we know that you are a holy God. You are gracious and kind. You are love itself. But you're a God who's holy and just and altogether righteous and true. And we realize that without judgment, there can never be a real righteous standard that's yours. But sometimes the thought of judgment scares us. And yet you give us passages like this to help us to know that we never need to be afraid. We just need to learn like Abraham to live by faith in the face of judgment. And we'll thank you, God, for all that you might give us to encourage us today. May you be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Faith is often proved in a crisis. And it doesn't take a keen observer of our culture to know that we are a nation in crisis. We're a nation divided over a multitude of moral, social, economic, and spiritual issues. I have to be honest, I never thought I'd be living in a country that struggled in conflict over defining what is a man or what is a woman. I never thought I'd be in a country where a major political party would make a part of their official platform the increased killing of babies. Every day the news is filled with stories of sexual violence and mass shootings and kidnappings and sex trafficking. I've read recently over 2 million Illegal aliens have flooded across our border. A lot of them are gang members and international terrorists just over the last year and nine months. The fentanyl epidemic, contamination of food supplies, threat of conflict with China and Russia, just to name a few, and it goes on and on. Could there be anyone who could have predicted that our nation could come to this level of a moral and spiritual crisis? Can there be any doubt that we are beginning to experience the reality of God's judgment upon our nation for the rejection of him? Listen to God's response to the very same issues that existed in the first century in the Roman world in Paul's day. Listen to the familiarity of this. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. You see that? 
since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. And although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Sometimes God's judgment doesn't come raining down sulfur from the heavens as he did for Sodom and Gomorrah. Sometimes it's God gives them over. God gives them over. God gives them over to the very sins they choose. And he uses those very things to bring judgment and destruction. Can anyone doubt that we may be under that very kind of judgment of God giving us over to the things that we are choosing as a nation. You see, this was the reality Abraham faced when he met the Lord again in Genesis 18 and 19, as the Lord came to rain down judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, so often we want to run right to chapter 19 and celebrate God's judgment of homosexuality and immorality and sexual sin and moral depravity across the cities of the plain. God's going to bring the judgment. Let's get there and see it. Well, make no mistake about it, Sodom and Gomorrah were not destroyed for their lack of hospitality. They were judged and destroyed for what God called their great wickedness and their grievous sin. A wickedness and grievous sin that in many ways is taking over our own land. And it's inviting God's judgment as well. And by the way, it's not just homosexual sin. It's all kinds of sin, moral sin premarital sex, extramarital sex, all kinds of immorality in our entertainment and so many other places. In fact, Ruth Graham, Billy's wife, once famously said, if God doesn't judge America, he owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. But you see, the real story of these chapters is not the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. The real story of these chapters is not the destruction and the judgment. The real story of these chapters is the faith of Abraham demonstrated in the face of this judgment. Because Abraham becomes an example for us of how people of faith are to live in the face of God's impending judgment. How did Abraham respond? Moses wrote for us. He continued to be faithful in worship. He was faithful to believe God's promise. And he was faithful in his intercession for the people. All of chapter 19 is the story of what happened in response to Abraham's faithful worship, belief, and intercession. So how did he face it? He reminds us in the face of God's judgment, people of faith remain faithful in worship. Going back to chapter 18, look at verse 1. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. 
Abraham looked up, saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. You know, you hear a lot today about worship wars. Churches battling back and forth about the kind of music they ought to have and what we should use, and people want this style and that style. And while certainly the music can be a part of our worship, we need to understand that a worship service is not just about the music. In fact, it's not just about the service. It's about us and our response to God. Worship is the demonstration of worth. That's what worship is. So we see expressions of worth all the time. So when you go to the mall or wherever and you see a young man park his new car across three parking spaces, or you see a family, a young family that spends $4,000 to spend three days at Disneyland, or the guy that's going to spend $500 or more for a single day to cheer on the 49ers, what you're seeing is worship. They're demonstrating by their actions and by their priorities and by their willingness to spend and sacrifice, they are demonstrating what the car or the trip or the team is worth to them. We even use the language sometimes to describe it. That kid worships that car or that guy worships that team. They don't mean by that that they think those things are God. But they do mean that by the way they're living, those things demonstrate to be of superior worth or important worth in their lives. Well, guess what? You and I as Christians are to be living such a way that when people see our lives, the way we respond, our priorities, the way we use our money, the way we spend our time, that they would look at us and say, wow, those people worship God. He's of ultimate worth to them. In fact, our word worship that we use all the time comes from an old English compound word, worth-shipe, which literally means the expression of worth. So when Abraham sees the Lord, he responds in worship as he had done before, demonstrating God's worth to him. So we read in chapter 18, verse 1, the Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up, saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He bows low to the ground before these three, calls the one Lord, Adonai, Master, Sovereign, Lord. He refers to himself as the servant. He prepares an elaborate meal And then he stands aside, away under a tree while they're eating, as any true servant would do in the face of one he called his master. And Abraham was demonstrating what the Lord and this visit was worth to him. And you might wonder, how did Abraham know that this was a pre-incarnate physical appearance of the Lord, the sovereign Lord who was standing right there in front of him? How did he know that? Because it wasn't the first time he had seen him or had a visitation. Do you remember when Abraham was 75 years old in the Ur of the Chaldees? The Lord first spoke to him and said, I want you to go to a land that I will show you. What did Abraham do? He obeyed and went. In Genesis 12, verse 7, the Lord appears to Abraham again, telling him, this land is that I'm giving you is for you and your seed, your offspring, and all nations are going to come to know you, are going to know me through you. He appears again to speak to Abraham in Genesis 13 and again in Genesis 15, telling him that an heir would come from his own body. He speaks to him again in Genesis 17, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I'm God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. So what does Abraham do? He falls face down again and he worships. And the Lord said, I'm changing your name. You no longer be Abram, which means exalted father. Now your name is Abraham, which probably means the father of many. And so less than a year later, after that meeting in Genesis 17, the Lord appears again while Abraham's sitting in his tent in the heat of the day. 
And notice each time the Lord appears, Abraham responds in worship. He bows down, he presents an offering, and he obeys his word. Did Abraham do everything well in his life? No, he didn't. He's just as frail as the rest of us. But he never stopped being a worshiper. God was of ultimate worth to him, and it showed every time the Lord was present. And Abraham is an example for us. You know, the times in which we're living, they're becoming more and more wicked. But God is still showing himself to those who are willing to believe and who know him. God is revealing himself in his word. We get to hear him speak even more clearly than Abraham. And we get to talk to God every time we bow our heads to pray. And you know what? God doesn't meet us at the trees of Mamre anymore. He doesn't have to because he lives in us when we believe. So God can meet with me anytime. And so I can meet with him. I don't have to wait for him to appear. He's always there. So I can meet him in the car. I can meet him in my living room at the kitchen. He can meet us here at church. In fact, I am quite certain he's right here, right now. And he knows every heart in this room, every mind, every thought, every word, every deed. See, we are the Lord's servants, just as Abraham declared. But we're even more than that now. Because of Jesus, we are God's children. Do you remember what Paul wrote in Galatians 3, verse 26? So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have, been clothed, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. That's why Paul would write to the Ephesian church in Ephesians 1 verse 11. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And look at this. And you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, just like Abraham, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. When you believe like Abraham believed, you become a child of God. And we are called to live for the praise of his glory. We are to know him. And we are to make him known. Even in the face of impending judgment, we are to be faithful in our worship as we declare together his unchanging, ultimate worth in our lives. And not only faithful in worship, but in the face of God's judgment, people of faith remain faithful to believe God's promise. In verse 9, the men asked, the Lord and the angels asked Abraham, where's your wife Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent, he said. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him, and Abraham and Sarah were already very old. Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? And then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year and Sarah will have a son. Sarah tried to cover her tracks, but the Lord knew she had laughed. And I'm not sure, so sure I wouldn't have either. 
And when the men got up to leave, verse 16, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. What he has promised him. You know, over the years, especially with my kids, I have been tried to have been very, very careful about what I promise. Because I realize that I am not in control of all circumstances, and I may well be intentioned when I make a promise, but I can't control all the factors, some of which may keep me from keeping that promise. But I never have to worry about that with the promises of God. In fact, do you remember when, what Joshua said when Israel came into the promised land in Joshua 21 verse 45 not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed every one was fulfilled or as the writer of Hebrews reminds us in Hebrews 10 verse 23 let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful you see in the face of impending judgment that's what Abraham did he held on to the promise of God. God refocused Abraham's attention on the promise, reassuring Abraham that no matter what judgment fell on Sodom and Gomorrah or any other judgment that might fall in the future, God had made a promise to Abraham and he was going to keep it. So he didn't have to worry about the coming judgment. That's why it says in verse 16 when the men got up to leave, they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. And the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Abraham and the Lord are walking along together with the two angels, and the Lord says, shall I keep from Abraham what I'm about to do? And he reminded Abraham of the promise he had made. You don't have to worry, Abraham. I've made you a promise. You don't have to worry about the judgment that's coming. You see, this is why the Apostle Paul later, reflecting on these passages, would write this to the Romans in Romans chapter 4, verse 18. Against all hope, Abraham and hope believed. And so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead, yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. I just want to ask you this morning, you believe that? Do you believe that God sent Jesus to die on a cross for your sins? Do you believe that Jesus, the sinless one's payment was so sufficient that his payment fully paid for our sin and the sin of the world? Do you believe that God said, I took my son down and put him in a grave, but the grave couldn't hold him? And three days later, he rose again victorious. Do you believe what God said, that he conquered sin, death, and the grave, and that Jesus is alive? Do you believe today that if I trust what God has said about this Jesus and invite him into my life, that I will be saved because God made a promise, those who trust in the Lord will never be ashamed, never disappointed. Do you believe that? Well, if you do, then you have the faith of Abraham. 
And if you believe like that, then God has reckoned to you the very righteousness of Christ. It is credited to you by faith that you are now saved through the blood of Jesus. You see, what's happening in Genesis 18 cannot be overlooked or overestimated for us. That's why so many times we run to chapter 19 and the judgment, we forget what's going on in chapter 18. God is reiterating the promise of a son through Abraham whose offspring would lead to the one who would bring salvation and save people who believe from the judgment to come. It would not be through the natural son Ishmael, but through the son of the promise, Isaac. Listen to Paul's words again to the Galatians in Galatians 3 verse 26. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor, there is a, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. That's why he goes on to say in Galatians 4, in verse 22, it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman, the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of a divine promise. These things are being taken figuratively. The women represent two covenants. Ishmael, the old covenant, Isaac, the new. One, the law of law, the the covenant of law, the other, the covenant of grace. The one by works, the other by faith. That's why Paul went on to say in Galatians 4, verse 28, now you brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit. It's the same now. The flesh and the spirit war against each other, Paul said. But what does the scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we're not children of the slave woman, We're children of the free woman. We are the children of the promise. This is why you and I living today in a world much like Sodom and Gomorrah and under the knowledge of God's present and coming judgment are not to be afraid. We are to refocus again on the truth of the promise that God has made. Those who trust in me, who believe in me, who have faith in me will be saved. You are saved from the wrath of God. We need to refocus with an obedient faith, keeping our hope in the promises of God. Remember Joshua's words? Not one of all the Lord's good promises failed. Every one is fulfilled. And in the face of judgment, we are to believe and cling to the powerful promise, just like Abraham did. And not only faithful in worship and believing the promise, but in the face of God's judgment, people of faith remain faithful to intercede. In chapter 18, verse 20, we read this. The Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sins so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I'll know. The men turned away and went toward Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you, will not the judge of all the earth do right? And the Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And you know the rest. Abraham speaks up. Well, what if there's five less? I won't do it for 45. What if there's 40? I won't do it for 40. What if there's 30? I won't do it for 30. What if it's 20? What if it's 10? And the Lord answered him, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And when the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. People, this may be the high point of Abraham's growing faith. Do you remember Abraham was called a friend of God? 
And in this very precious moment, God is revealing to his friend what he is about to do to Sodom and Gomorrah. And what does Abraham do? He immediately doesn't think of himself. He thinks of others. He thinks of Lot and his family and any other righteous people that may be living in the midst of those cities of the plain. And so he says to God in verse 23, will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Abraham is appealing to the righteousness of God in his intercession. He's not saying these people don't deserve it. What he's saying is, you are about to come and destroy a city for its wickedness, but what if there are righteous people there? Will you really destroy the righteous along with the wicked? God says, no, I won't. If I can find as few as 10 righteous people in the whole city, I'll spare the whole place. But apparently not even 10 people could be found. So the judgment falls. Abraham knows his nephew Lot and his family are living in the city, and he knows that they're not engaging in, in wickedness. In fact, when the two angels walk into the city of Sodom, they find Lot sitting at the city gate, chapter 19, a place of honor, a place where people would sit to help adjudicate and make judgments over the various civil, civic activities of the city. It was a place of honor. It's in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, that Peter refers to Lot as a righteous man tormented in his righteous soul by the wickedness he saw and heard. So Abraham intercedes. Well, I know there's some righteous people there. Are you going to destroy them all? God, it's not like you to do that. You're a God of grace. Lot was called a righteous man. The offer of his daughters to the mob is troubling. Many people I've read have said, well, since Lot was a righteous man, he probably never really intended to give his daughters over to the crowd. He was trying to appeal to the crowd to try to get them to turn away from the house completely. Maybe it was some kind of a bluff, they say. Who knows? Maybe it was a weak and stupid moment on his part. But whatever the case, God intervenes. The angels grab Lot, they yank him into the house, they slam the door, they strike the men outside with blindness. And the angels say to Lot, you got anybody else here? You better get him out. He goes and tells his sons-in-law, pledged to be married to his daughters. They think he's joking. They laugh at him. They don't leave. Even Lot and his daughters and his wife are hesitant. They're telling him, flee. You've got to get out of here right now or you're going to be swept up in this. Flee to the hills. Get out of here. Oh, we can't go to the hills. It's going to be too hard. Can we go to the little town down the valley here? Called Zoar, which means small. All right. Go there. But get out of here now. They're still hesitating. So the angels take them by the hands and lead them out in a pure act of the grace of God. And he tells them, get out of here. And whatever you do, do not look back. Well, we know Lot's wife looked back. She turned into a literal pillar of salt. We don't know why she looked back. Did she forget some of her favorite dishes? Did she like the house that was there? Did she just want to see the bombs falling out upon the city? We don't know why she looked back, but she was told specifically, don't do it. How important it is to listen to God in the face of judgment. But even in the midst of judgment, God's grace was still shining as he offered grace to those who were to be saved if only they would believe and trust God and obey. 
Why was God's grace given so abundantly to Lot and his family, who even themselves were hesitating? It tells us in Genesis 19, verse 29, when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham. And he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. He remembered Abraham, the intercession that he had made. It's a great reminder for me, maybe for all of us. As God's covenant people, we are to respond like Abraham, to pray for lost people to be saved and the righteousness and the righteous to rise up and stand strong in the grace of God. This is why the Apostle Paul later told Timothy in 1 Timothy 2 verse 1, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. God's judgment is coming. The wicked are going to be destroyed. But God knows how to save those who trust in him. You remember what Peter wrote, 2 Peter 2 verse 4? If God did not spare angels when they sinned and sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the righteous for punishment on the day of judgment. You see, this is one of the reasons why I don't worry about what's coming. I don't worry if there's going to be a pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, pre-wrath judgment position that's coming. It doesn't matter to me. I speak to people all the time. It happened again recently. A very, very dear lady was telling me how troubled she was thinking about the fact that she might go through what's called the great tribulation that's coming. And I said, ma'am, you don't, you don't have to worry. Are you a follower of Jesus? Yes. You believe he died on a cross for you? Yes. You've confessed to him your sin? You've received him into your life? Yes. You live to worship him? Yes. And you don't need to worry. He may yank us out of here before any of that happens. But if he doesn't, you don't have to be afraid. God knows how to keep the righteous through the judgment. So whatever we have to face, you won't face it alone. God, the one who said, I'll never leave you or forsake you, he'll be with you. So, yeah, it's all right to hope that we get yanked out in a pre-trib thing, but if we don't, you don't have to worry. God knows how to keep the righteous. In fact, one of the great encouragements is to know that Jesus lives in us to ever intercede for us. You and I need to be interceding that same way. In all of chapter 19 is full of the details of how Abraham's faith and intercession impacted the carrying out of the judgment. He prayed for the righteous to be spared because if the righteous would be spared, God said he would spare the whole city. And that's why, as Christians, we are never to take the attitude of, oh boy, the judgment's coming. I can't wait till the wicked get what they're due. That wasn't Abraham's perspective. For the sake of 10 people, would you please spare the whole city that somehow they might know the grace of God and be saved? You know, when I read all about this judgment stuff, and God rained down judgment, he burned that thing to a crisp. There was nothing but ashes left when he got done. When I read about this kind of judgment, I wonder, God, how are we really supposed to respond today? What are we really supposed to do? I don't know of any 
single chapter that summarizes how to live by faith in the face of a coming judgment than what Peter has written in 2 Peter chapter 3. When Peter wrote this second letter, he wrote it to those who through the righteousness of God and Savior Jesus Christ, of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. He's writing to people of faith who are going through the ringer for that faith in a pre-Christian world where people were not happy with some of the things Christians were doing and saying. You and I live in a post-Christian world, and we face people all the time who tell us that our views are getting more and more dangerous and more and more out of the mainstream. Praise God for that. As things get more wicked, the light of Christ needs to shine even brighter. So when Peter writes to them, encourage them, he writes in this letter about affirming your calling and election. There are going to be false teachers, and they're going to be eventually destroyed, and the day of the Lord is coming. Listen to what he wrote to them in 2 Peter chapter 3. I'm just going to read it for you. This is Peter. This is the word of the Lord. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed, the flood. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You see it? But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare or burned up. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. You look forward to that day and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Just like Abraham did. Who demonstrated how to live by faith, even in the face of judgment. How did he do it? He was faithful in worship. He continued to declare God of ultimate worth, no matter what. He continued believing the promise. Promise that never fails. You're going to have a son. He's going to lead to the Messiah. And God has now promised us, you believe in this Messiah, you don't have to worry about the judgment. You have been saved. You will be saved. And he interceded 
for God's grace, mercy, and salvation. For the righteous to stand strong in the midst of it, to be delivered, and that more would be spared, that they too might come to know and turn to repentance. We are not to be afraid, no matter what's coming. God is at the helm. He is sovereign and in control. His word is always true. And that's why we can live by faith. Even in the face of judgment. Just like Abraham. Father, I want to thank you today that your word is so powerful, so clear, so precise. There may be a lot of things about timing and other stuff that we don't get and yet can't quite figure out. But what we do come away with is the everlasting truth that you are a good God, righteous and true, fully in control. Every promise you've made will happen. Everything promised us in Christ is a great big yes. So we don't have to worry about what's coming, but we do have to be sure to worship, to do everything we can to make sure that you are of ultimate worth in our life as demonstrated to the world around us by the way we live. That you will help us to so be immersed in your word and cling to the promise that we will never falter, that no matter what happens, we are children of God, God's possession to the praise of his glory, and you will see us through. And we need to be interceding for the people of God to stand strong in the midst of all of this crumbling world and for you to pour out your grace and mercy as you did for Lot so that many might be saved. Help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And Lord, as we come into this time of communion, Would you help us to remember again what a great and precious gift you have given through the sacrifice of your son, who we remember today. In Jesus' name, amen.